Hey, this is Travis Bennett, the pastor here at Arena of Life Church, and I just want to welcome you to our podcast. I pray this builds your faith, encourages you, and brings you to newer levels in Christ. Enjoy the message. I'll tell you ahead of time, uh, this is going to be a two-part for this Day of Atonement. This is part one that was just so much in this uh, particular uh, study of the feast that I just couldn't get it in in uh, the time frame that we have for tonight. So uh, be be planning on coming back next week because we got a lot to cover. It's a good one. So we'll just start with uh, the Day of Atonement uh, review and and uh, part one for tonight. And uh, y'all been I hope y'all have been getting something out of this. It's been very good uh, for us to build us up to help us to learn and see the plan of redemption that God has for us as is reflected in, in all the seven feasts and the, the other things that we see in here. So I believe we're learning some things that maybe we didn't know before. So uh, here we go. <clears throat> so we're in the last feast season of the year for the Hebrew people, the Feast of Tabernacles, <clears throat> which includes the Feast of Trumpets, Yom Turok, studied last time, the Day of Atonement, and Tabernacles. This was the final season when all the Jew- Jewish males were required to make the trip to Jerusalem. Remember, they had to do this uh, three times a year. The final season was also called the Feast of Ga- Ingathering, and we'll see what that means when we get to the, to the actual uh, Feast of Tabernacles. It makes a lot of difference, but you can read about that in Exodus 23:16 if you want to take note of that. And remember, this was the final harvest season, and now the people of Israel in the la- land would have a time of rest. In God's plan with these feasts, we've seen through the Passover season the representation of peace with God. With the Feast of Weeks or uh, Pentecost, we have seen the power, remember, the power of God, the, the giving of the Holy Spirit. And now, with this last feast season, we are seeing the rest in God. God's plan of redemption throughout the ages has been to provide us peace with God, power from God, and the rest of God. And that's a pretty good plan, wouldn't you say? God wants us to find rest in Him through the person and work of Jesus Christ our Lord, the Lord of the Sabbath. He wants us to find contentment in Him, in God, in His nature, and who He is. We have been through the Feast of Trumpets, and in our study found that it fell in the seventh month of the Jewish religious calendar, the month of Tishri. It was also called the Jewish New Year, uh, Rosh Hashanah, which means literally means head of the year. The main purpose of the feast was to announce both the arrival of the seventh month and the preparation for the Day of Atonement, which would occur exactly ten days later. The trumpets was, uh, also announced the new year. Trumpets were blown every month when they announced a new month, the beginning of the month. But on this particular month, this, this month of Tishri, the new year, the trumpets, when we talked about this last time, the shofars, and we had one to show you a couple of weeks ago, but uh, anyway, were blown extra long and loud throughout the course of the day. And of course, when a Christian hears anything about trumpets, we should get all excited and begin to think about the last trumpet as described in 1 Corinthians 15, 52. It says in, in that verse, it says, In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. Are your ears tuned to listen for that trumpet? I hope they are. One day we're going to hear it. It's going to be a beautiful sound. And I believe every Christian will know it, the true Christians will know it when they hear that sound, and they'll know it's the time. In the Old Testament Jewish culture, uh, the, from the wilderness journey and forward, 
Trumpets were blown for the announcement of the new moon, as we said, the Jewish lunar-based calendar. And orders to march is in moving a camp, a call to assemble the people, a call of alarm or for battle, and et cetera. We talked about that. Numbers chapter 10 gives us a good summary of the sounding of trumpets. You can look at that on your other lesson if you got that. Even in these examples I've just given you, you can see the significance of the sounding of the trumpet. You can see that to see the new moon, as uh, you must be watchful. The call to assemble as a body of people, the call to move camp, as we talked about the last time, and an alarm or a call to battle. You can see the elements of the description of the rapture in this, all related to the sound of the trumpet. I think most Christians who have studied the Bible and have a little understanding of what's going on in the last days would agree that part of the spiritual fulfillment of this feast can be seen in the rapture of the church. How many is ready for the rapture? Everybody ready? Let it, let it rep happen today. As we have discussed before with the removal or rapture of the church, God's time clock in dealing with directly with his people, the Jewish remnant, starts again. So as we go on to the next part of this feast season, let us keep in mind that the Feast of Trumpets, Yom Teruach, was very important because this was considered the most important feast season of the year for the religious Jew, not just because of the new year, but because these were considered the high holy days of the years. And as we get into this lesson, we'll see more about that, that and in the next one also, the next part of this one. Now, on this feast day, Rosh Hashanah, the trumpet, or in this case the shofar, was blown longer and louder than usual. And with this blowing that was announcing the new moon and the new month, and the new year was also announcing that the, what the Hebrews called the 10 days of awe or the 10 days of repentance. Remember, 10 days of awe, were, were, you started with the first of the month when they started blowing. It should have brought, been brought, getting you ready and aware uh, that you need to go into a state of, uh, of repentance. Or, or, uh, and we'll talk about that here a little later. Because in 10 days was the biggest uh, feast, uh, the biggest celebration or the biggest time of the year. It's called uh, Yom Kippur, which we're going to do tonight. So let's read. Let's read what it says in Leviticus 23 about the next appointed feast, which is Yom Kippur. Leviticus 23, and starting in verse 26. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Also the tenth day of this seventh month shall be the day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation to you. You shall afflict your souls and offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. And you shall do no work on that same day, for it is the day of atonement, to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. For any person who is not afflicted in soul on that day, that same day, shall be cut off from his people. And any person who doesn't, does any work on that day, same day, that person I will destroy from among his people. You shall do no manner of work. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations and all your dwellings. It shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest, and you shall afflict your souls on the ninth day of the month at evening, from evening to evening, you shall celebrate your Sabbath. The Day of Atonement, uh, also called, the Hebrew uh, word for that is Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur was considered the most solemn holy day of all the, all the feasts and festivals for the Jewish people. As we'll sh we shall see, uh, there is much uh, prophetic insight and implication regarding the coming of the Messiah, the restoration of Israel, and the final judgment of the world. This was the one day of the year that the high priest could enter into the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle or temple in later years and sprinkle the blood of sacrifice onto the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant to atone for the sins of the Israelite people. 
This life for life principle was the foundation of the entire sacrificial system and marked the great day of intercession made by the high priest on behalf of Israel. Leviticus 17.11 explains it a little farther as far as the life for life principle. It says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. We talked about this, we studied this when we were uh, talking about blood covenant in the, in the school, uh, Bible school for that. For the blood, it, it's the, it's life is in the blood, and it's the blood that makes atonement for the soul. It was also the only day that he, the high, high priest, <coughs> could even speak the name of God. Uh, what, the YHWH, it was so uh, holy to them, they wouldn't even put a, a vowel in there because they didn't want to say the word. You had to, you, it was unspeakable. It's called the ineffable name. In other words, it's un, unspeakable. Yahweh or Jehovah as we modernized it. Uh, all other days when speaking of God, they would use Adonai, which means Lord, or Hashim, which means the name. In other words, when they were speaking of God on normal conversation, they would say either Lord or they would say, well, in the name, and they would never say Yahweh. The only day that even the, in only the high priest could speak it on that day, the name of God, or what's considered the real name of God. <clears throat> and he gave that name, and we studied, I believe when we studied that one time before, and, and probably you heard this in the lessons, but that was the night when he did this, I believe it was in Exodus 13, I believe that uh, he's talking about when he told, when Moses, Moses said, well, who, whom shall I tell that sent me? And you was, he said, you will tell them, that it is the I am that I am that sent you. And that's what that Yahweh basically boils down to, is Yahweh means I am that I am. If there was a day on the calendar that Jews would pay attention to, it would be this day. Everyone would be in church on that day, or, or should I say tabernacle or temple. In other words, if we were to compare it to modern Christianity, it would be like Christmas and Easter. This was the day that the CNE Jews would show up. It was that important. Now, I want to relate to just a little quick story that uh, Chris Cook a couple of weeks ago brought, his, uh, the lady that was with brought to my attention. I just want to bring it to you to show even in secular Jews, they knew about Yom Kippur. So it's a story about Sandy Koufax. If you ever heard the story about Sandy Koufax, maybe you have. On October 7th, I'll just relate this real quick to you. Uh, on October 7th, 1965, Sandy Koufax of the L.A. Dodgers refused to pitch in the game one of the World Series against the Minnesota Twins because it was Yom Kippur. And even though Don Drysdale pitched in, this, in his place, they still lost the game. A young Jewish Hasidic rabbi named Moshe Feller, Moshe means Moses, but anyway, his name was Moshe Feller, he met with Sandy the next day and told him what he had done was remarkable, putting religion before his career, and that as a result, more people had not gone to work and more children had not gone to school to observe the holiday. He said he wanted to present Koufax with a pair of uh, tefillim, which were scrolls of scripture worn by Jewish men during weekday prayers, or little things that you wear that uh, have little prayer scriptures from the Psalms, usually. Uh, this simple action by, uh, of a secular Jew uh, to honor the High Holy Day had such an impact on the American Jewish community at the time that it was said that more Jews knew his name, Sandy Koufax, than they knew the names of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So a big impact. So I'm just just relate that story, but just because she brought it to my attention, I wanted to honor that uh, for the for her. So it's, it's, it's remarkable, you know. Even secular Jews know, and it's just like secular 
Christians or people all over the world, they know when Christmas is, they know when Easter is, you know. It's so CNE, I guess you call them CNE Jews like we do CNE Christians. So we'll talk about the high priest entering the Holy of Holies in a little bit. But first, let's talk about the words and phrases atone and atonement and afflict your soul and afflicted in soul for a little bit more understanding. And I probably could have used a better translation, but I, I think you all will get it because you guys are, are uh, smart and, and Bible students and you know these kind of things. Atonement. It's the Hebrew word kafar, to cover. It means to cover, to expiate, to placate, cancel, appease, cleanse, disannul, forgive, be merciful, pacify, pardon, reconcile, make atonement, purge. Exodus 29:33 is the first place where this word is translated atonement in the Bible of 69 times that it's translated that. In other words, it's, it's called kafar 69 times in the, in the Bible, in the Old Testament. The plural of kafar is, um, <clears throat> is kippur, uh, which means atonements. So it, should be, it actually should read the Day of Atonements because that's what it is. Uh, if you use the word Yom Kippur, it should say uh, Day of Atonements. The first use of kavar is translated pitch and gives the essential meaning in that it refers to a covering for the ark which made it safe from leaks so as to protect life. You can go back and read that account in, in Genesis 6.14, but if you remember when Noah built the ark, he was instructed once he got through building it to coat the inside and the outside with pitch, which was tar, which would keep it from sealing. So that's where that word uh, kafar, which means cover, which translates into pitch in that regards, in that regard, if you look in the King James Version of the Bible, uh, it means cover. So basically you can say that the ark was, a, was a, as actually a picture of atonement because uh, God atoned, covered his people, the eight individuals that were in the ark with all the animals in that uh, account of Genesis 6.14. The plural, kippur, is also used in that verse. Kephar and kippur are the only Hebrew words translated as atonement. In the New Testament, the word atonement is found only once, Romans 5, uh, 11 in the King James Version. Another Hebrew word, kapareth, from the ri uh, root word kafar, is translated mercy seat 27 times. And it's referring to the lid of the cover of the Ark of the Covenant. If you remember when we talked about uh, the Ark of the Covenant, which was the only piece of furniture inside the Holy of Holies, that cover that had the two cherubim angels, uh, two uh, uh, cherubim angels on top of it, it's a solid gold cover, and it went on top of the the ark, and that was called uh, kafar or the mercy seat. Uh, it also, it translated like that. So that gives you a word what that means. That kafar, that cover, still means cover. And what was in the mercy? Uh, what was inside the ark? Well, it was the the uh, the word of testimony. In other words, the Ten Commandments. That where is where what rested in the ark of the covenant. Some like to use the phrase at one minute when we're talking about atonement, at one meaning something that brings us into a oneness with God, which should be interpreted to mean into a right relationship and should not be interpreted as into equality or oneness, the same level with God. So I just want to make that clear. I, 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 the word, uh, when they say at one it's not really in there, but it, you can break the word down and it says at one and be okay with it as long as you uh, interpret it that... Uh, you're in right relationship with God. In other words, when you say, I'm at one with God, I'm in right relationship because of the atonement. So next, we'll talk about the afflict your soul. Uh, it, it comes from the Hebrew word uh, anah, meaning to fast, humble yourself, literally be bowed down, 
be humbled by fasting, submissive, sincere, and serious repentance. <clears throat> Literally, on the ninth day, you know, we said there was ten days uh, that you were supposed to be afflicting your soul. You're supposed to be in that ten days of awe. But literally on the ninth day, that was when the day that was actually called to fast. The total fasting from sunset to sunset, from the ninth to the day of the tenth, the sunset of the tenth. Uh, so no food, no water, no bathing or perfuming, no use of the bed or sandals, 24 hour, 25 hours straight till one hour after sunset on the tenth, standing the whole time. In other words, the whole congregation was standing this whole time during this time of repentance. You know, we just got off that... Ten days of repentance, we did. It's a good thing they didn't make us stand all the whole time, isn't it? Or do all those other things. And another thing, you know, they, you had to refrain from uh, intimacy if you were a married uh, husband and wife. You had to refrain for that during that time, too. So they took that fasting very, very seriously, standing the whole time, prayer, and doing self-examination. Anyone that did not fast on that day would be cut off, literally put to death, and anybody that was only people that were excluded from fasting was any child under nine and any sick person at that time. So hopefully that helps our understanding of the gravity of the day and how serious it was to be taken. Now we'll look into, we're going to look into chapter 16 of Leviticus to see more details of the actual ritual. What we've seen was a, a, <clears throat> the giving of the feast day in Leviticus 23. We're going to, we're going to study 16 for uh, chapter 16 in more detail, the actual rituals of the day, because this is where the high priest earned his pay. I promise you, he earned his pay that day. Here will we see some of the various types that are pointing to the actual substance of it all, which is Jesus. In this chapter, Aaron, the, uh, the brother of Moses, I'll tell you this right here so we'll know, but we're talking about this first time. Aaron, the bro brother of uh, Moses, he is the high priest. With the Earlier in the chapters in, in Leviticus, we see the ordination of Aaron and his sons uh, before them, their ordination and consecration of them. But I probably won't be using the name of Aaron uh, every time I reference the high priest uh, throughout this study, so just keep that in mind. But in this, what we're talking about in this first instance, especially in the instance of, of Leviticus 16. So in Leviticus 16.2, it says, And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother <clears throat> not to come at just any time into the holy place, inside the veil, before the mercy seat, which is on the ark, lest he die, for I'll, I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. You know, this is probably just to give him a little bit, give Aaron a little bit of heads up to make sure you do it right, because if you appear, uh, try to go in there in any day besides Yom Kippur, Yom Kippur, you will die, lest he die, for I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. <clears throat> So we want to make sure he has a good understanding, and I'll explain that a little bit longer, uh, farther as we go, why he probably needed that understanding uh, because of some consequences that happened uh, afterwards. So the high priestly duties in order for the Day of Atonement, the day also called the Day of Judgment, that's why it was so serious. This was the judgment on the whole nation of Israel. This is the one time when the high priest went before the Lord on, on behalf of the nation. As you will see in Leviticus 16, there, are, there was an elaborate ceremony associated this with most, this most important of the day. And I encourage you to read that, um, that book of Leviticus. Go back and read it for yourself. We'll touch, we'll touch some of the scriptures in this study, but not all of them. So here's a basic list, and it's just a basic list broke down of the high priest duties in the order of, the, of this day so far as they are recounted in this chapter. 
and it has the verse by it, so you can go look and go back and see where each one of those particular things that we're talking about. I just wanted to use this so you could see the, the level of, of, um, of work that, um, that the high priest had to do that particular day, and only he could do it. So first of all, he bathed. We'll talk about that here in a minute. He dressed himself in his, holy, his white holy garments in verse 4. He offered or presented at the door of the tabernacle a bullock for a sin offering for himself in his house. That's in verse 3. He presented at the same place two goats for a sin offering for the congregation. That was in verse 7. He cast lots on the two goats, one of which was to be sacrificed and the other to be let go into the wilderness. That's verse 8. He sacrificed the bullock in verse 11. He passed from the court through the holy place into the holy of holies with a censer and incense and filled the space beyond the veil with a cloud of smoke from the incense. Verse 12 and 13. He returned to the court and taking some of the blood of the bullock, passed again within the veil and there sprinkled the blood once on the front of the mercy seat and seven times before it. Verse 14. He came out again into the court and killed the goat in which the lot for sacrifice had fallen. Verse 15. For the third time he entered the holy of holies and went through the same process with the goat's blood uh, as with the bullock's blood, verse 15. And, and number 11, he purified the other, part of the, tab- the other parts of the tabernacle as he has purified the Holy of Holies by sprinkling with the atoning blood as before and placing some of it on the horns of the altar of incense. Read that in Exodus 30.10 in verse 16, uh, the, the full story for that. In verse 12, he, re- he returned to the court. He placed the blood of the bullock and the goat upon the horns of the altar of burnt sacrifice and sprinkled it seven times. He offered to God, uh, and next step, he offered to God the remaining goat, laying his hands upon it, confessing and laying the sins of the goat upon its head, in verse 20 and 21. And he consigned the goat to a man whose business it was to conduct it to the border of the wilderness and there release it, verse 21 and 22. In 15, he, he bathed and changed his linen vestments to his commonly worn high priest dress, which we call the golden garments, uh, verse 23 and 24. He sacrificed one after the other, the two rams, as burnt offerings for himself and for the people, uh, verse 24. He burnt the fat of the sin offering upon the altar, verse 25, and then he took measures that the remainder of the sin offering could be burnt into the camp, uh, verse 21. So in all, uh, that you know, 27, I mean, in all... Uh, that day, let me just give you how much work he added, and it's and it and you can read it in for yourself in in uh, Numbers twenty nine uh, seven through eleven. If you want to write that down, over, uh, Numbers twenty nine seven through eleven. I didn't put it in there, but uh, he did twelve sacrifices. He's twelve sacrifices are commanded to be offered by the high priest on this day, namely. The morning and evening sacrifice, a burnt offering for the people, consisting of one young bullock, one ram already stated, and seven lambs, and one goat for a sin offering, so that in all there were 15 sacrifices offered besides the meat and drink offerings. He did, in one day's time, he did 15 offerings, and he had to do most of the work by himself. You can imagine, he was, that was a hard work day for him, very important too. So let's just, just address a few of the important passages. So Leviticus 16:4, uh, talking about the 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 well, we we'll, we'll, let's just read it. He shall put the holy linen tunic and the linen trousers on his body. He shall be girded with a linen sash, 
and with a linen turban, uh, and the linen trousers on the body. He shall be girded with a linen sash, and with a linen trouser he shall be attired. These are holy garments. Therefore he shall wash his body in water and put them on. See, before entering the tabernacle, the priest had to first bathe his entire body, not just his hands and feet as were, was required on other occasions. In other words, when, when there other sacrifices were taking place, remember in the, in the wilderness study, they had to go by and they had to bathe, their, they had to wash their hands and their feet in order to approach the altar of sacrifice or the brazen altar. So this, what we're seeing here, the washing was, a, was symbolic of the priest's purification before God. It is a type for us that we see that points to water baptism. The ceremonial washing away of sins in obedience and faith when we believe and follow Jesus, who is our atonement. This washing of the whole body was done twice on this day of atonement, once before he put on the holy garments, and later after he was through with the atoning sacrifices and took them off. In verse, We can see that in verse 23 and 24. Uh, and rather than wearing his usual colorful and elaborate garden, garments called the golden garments, this time he was, put, he, he was to put on the simple white linen garments that all the other regular priests wore, a linen tunic, linen trousers, linen sash, and a linen turban. There's a picture here that we need to see. The high priest was considered the most important. Listen to this. The high priest was considered the most important and highly esteemed man in all of Israel at that time, at that, time that particular day, because he represented the nation before God, especially on this occasion of the Day of Atonement. You could say... He was the man of the hour. The white, uh, and that was long hours that day. I'm the man of all the hours. The white linen garments that he was to put on speak first of perfect righteousness, for this is what the, what the priesthood is supposed to represent. But this also shows us a picture of humility. There's no ornamentation, no color, no tassels, nothing to differ, differentiate from the other priest. Now, if you, if, if Jennifer, if you put that picture on, on the, you'll see that, that, when I say there's no differentiation on the on the right, you see the the high, the golden what they call the golden garments, very beautiful. You know he was the only one that wore that, so you know without a shadow of a doubt he was the high priest. But on the day of atonement, he took off the golden garments and he put on the simple uh, white linen garments like the regular priest on the left wore. Now the only exception to that is the the high priest, the sash around the waist of the priest. Instead of being colorful like this, and this is correct, but on the on the high priest for that day, it, everything was white. There was no colorful, nothing of color, and he had a simple white turban, similar to the turban he has on his head, but it was white too. So everything was white uh, for the high priest on that particular day, uh, and for sure you can see that. So, so thus, Aaron, the high priest. Well, before I do that, let me just say, you might write this down too just to go look for yourself and see what I'm, uh, I don't want you to take my word for it. I want you to look it up and, and do some extra Bible study. Look up uh, John 19.23. John 19.23. And the reason I say that, I, I, as our daily readings and things go on, you know, I was reading through that and it, it hit me in a way, and I'm not for sure that this is, it really supports this, but this is, this is what it says in that particular verse. And this is when Jesus was crucified, and they took his garments, and they were dividing amongst the soldiers. It says, Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts, to each soldier a part, 
It doesn't say how many soldiers there were. It just says to each soldier apart and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam woven from the top in one piece. That What struck my mind about that was that it was a tunic just like the priest wore. In other words, a, a tunic of one piece woven from the neck straight down. And, and so they had, instead of cutting it and dividing it, see the reason for that is because you could not tear it as a priest, you could never tear your, in, 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 uh, in Jewish culture, if you were to go into mourning, one of the first things you did was you reached up and you tore your garment at the neck. Well, this, this was not allowed for priests. And so that tunic, what this tells me is Jesus already had the tunic of a priest on even when he was crucified before he was done that. So it's just a piece that you don't, you don't realize it's in there. But just think about that and meditate on that as, as, as you talk, uh, as you uh, think about that and, and look at that verse. But I believe that was, uh, that's a, that was pointing to uh, Jesus. Actually, it was pointing backwards to the priest, uh, the connection to the priest. He was our high priest, of course, the high priest of our confession. Thus, uh, Aaron, the high priest, uh, putting on the simple plain white garments uh, to perform the priestly duties required on the day of atonement, is demonstrating that the most prominent and important man of the nation, he was more important even than the king at that time. If there was a king, there wasn't a king at that time, but it would have been. But uh, the, must now come to a point of humility before, the, for, before God and to identify himself with the rest of the people of Israel. He must recognize that he too is a mere man and a sinner also and must reconcile himself to God before he can enter into the presence of God uh, into the Holy of Holies. Likewise, we should see this the, in this, the vivid picture, the high priest of our confession, Jesus, who came as a man and dwelt among us and identified us, but without sin. John 1, 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. See, Jesus, He was fully flesh and blood man, tempted and tested, and yet did not sin, and He offered Himself as the once and for all sacrifice. You know, he experienced, Jesus experienced all the things that man, that a human goes through. He experienced temptation, physical pain, sorrow, uh, uh, and loss, persecution, rejection, compassion, joy, and happiness. All the things that, are humans, that humans are faced with, there's probably more than that. But because Jesus was fully human, he, he suffered those things too. Matter of fact, Isaiah in 53, Isaiah 53, 3 was pointing to him when he called him the man of sorrows because he was a man that had sorrows uh, and, and losses. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, the weaknesses of the flesh is what he's talking about, but in all, was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. And then we see in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, uh, the Apostle Paul wrote this. He said, this, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and become obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So Jesus, as we can see in this verse, was fully man, but he was also fully God also. And the one and only God-man. No other, there was never anyone else like him. You know, thinking also back to this, you know, uh, what happened 
when man man sinned? What happened when Adam sinned? Uh, he 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 gave up his dominion over the world as God had given it to him. Didn't God say that we're going to give a man dominion over all the earth? So a man that had dominion when he sinned, it becomes Satan's. So that's why Satan is called the prince of the power of the air because he actually he is uh, the uh, the uh, the uh, king of this world. So I thought about this when I was thinking. I just wrote this note down a while ago. I just had a little revelation come upon me. But see, so when we see this, when him coming as a man, and sometime, and one one day we'll get into that. You know, why did he have to come as a man? Why did you know the the aspects of God and the things that we need to believe uh, as as believers? These kind of things. These are the essential things we need to believe. And this is one of them that did that God did come as a man, a fully man. But what I was getting to is. The first Adam, he, he was the man that gave everything up. And then the second or the last Adam, he's, he's the only man that could take it back. See, man gave it up, and then man had to take it back. That's the only way God is a just God. He has a legal system. There's a legal system in the universe, and God can't violate his own rule. So basically it was turned over to Satan, which was a legal transaction because man gave it up. And then so now the God-man, Jesus, he came back and he took it back. And he had to do it as a man. He couldn't do it as God. He had to do it as a man. And that makes a sense there. But anyway, that's another story. We'll do that some other time. Continuing with the atonement ritual from Leviticus 16. In verse 3, before Aaron, the high priest at the time of the tabernacle, had washed his body for purification, he had already selected a bullet for sacrifice for him and his household. The next step in the process was to select two goats and a ram from the people for a sin offering. We see that in Leviticus 16.5. That's what it says, and he shall take from the congregation of the, people, of the children of Israel two kids of the goats as a sin offering and one ram as a burnt offering. And he shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of the meeting. And then Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goat on which the Lord's lot fell and offer it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to be, to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it and to let it go as a scapegoat into the wilderness. So as we can see in, this, in these verses, that the two kid goats selected were presented to the Lord at the altar before the door of the temple for all to see, one on the right side of the priest and one on the left side before the priest. Before the uh, priest. They were, in other words, the two goats were before him, one on the right side, one on the left side, and they were all facing uh, west toward the tabernacle. This is, in other words, they're out in the courtyard uh, close to the altar, uh, the brazen altar, and they're all facing the Holy of Holies. So that's what it means before the Lord. When you bring them before the Lord, you're facing the Lord, which the Lord's presence is in the Holy of Holies. So lots were cast by the high priest for the goats, one for the Lord and one for the other goat, which was called the scapegoat or Azazel. As some as some uh, uh, translations say, call it the Azazel. It was always considered a good sign if the lot for the goat for the, for the Lord came up in the right hand rather than the left. More, we'll have more of that when we get into the uh, study of the scapegoat. Keep, keep in mind, we'll, we'll hit the scapegoat pretty early on in part two. So it was always considered a good sign for the, for the lot to fall uh, for, the, for the Lord in the right hand. A good omen. The one whose lot fell for the Lord was offered as a sin offering for the people. Uh, this typifies Christ who became sin for us 
suffering the penalty of sin, though he knew no sin. Second Corinthians 5.21 says this very plainly. It says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now, remember, we talked about that before. It's not that, he, that Jesus had any sin in him, but he took on, he became sin. He became the penalty for sin for us is what that means. So uh, we'll discuss the scapegoat a little later in the study, uh, but for now we'll continue with the atonement ritual. The two goats have been selected. Next we see the sin offering of the bullock for Aaron and for his house. Now, Leviticus 16, 11, And Aaron shall bring the bull of the sin offering. Remember, he had already presented it earlier, so he had selected it. So shall bring this bull, the one that he has selected, of the sin offering. Let me, let me tell you, this had to be a, sin, a bull without blemish, had to be very alive and vigorous, a very good bull. Top. This had to be top of the line bull for the for the priest. As a matter of fact, the bull was one of the most expensive uh, animals to offer for sacrifice. And so the high priest, because of his station where he was at, he had to offer the very best uh, for atonement for himself. So which is for himself, and he make atonement for himself and for his house, and shall kill the bull as the sin offering, which is for himself. So even though the day of atonement is for the sins of the nation. The high priest does not get a pass. Just like all of us, he too is a sinner. As we stated above concerning the linen garments, and if, he, and if he is to represent the nation of Israel before God, then he must be in the right position to do so. God is not a respect of persons and requires atonement for all individuals. You know, we talk about salvation is for everyone. Salvation is basically universal for everyone, but everyone has to accept it. In other words, it's not going to be universally meted out to everyone whether you knew about Jesus or not. You're going to have to accept it, has to accept it on their own individual basis. Deuteronomy 10, uh, 17 says, For the Lord your God is a God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality nor takes a bribe. A bribe. A- a- Acts 10, 34 says, uh, this is the account of Peter when he, uh, he, he met with uh, Cornelius and his family. And Peter, we, well, I think we talked about this a couple of sessions before. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, when he, when he witnessed that Gentiles were receiving the Lord, he says in uh, the Holy Spirit, he says, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. And then Romans 2.11, uh, it says, For there is no partiality with God, and, and Paul wrote this. And then, of course, Romans 3.23, which covers every one of us, for all have sinned, sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What we see in part here is a showing forth of, of the position of all men before God, irregardless of their station in life. We must all take, make the choice to get in right position before Him before we expect to affect change in the lives of anyone else. You have to start with yourself, and that start is in recognizing the need for a substitute sacrifice. Can you see Jesus in this substitutionary sacrifice? Yes, he took our place. That's the whole point. We want to see Jesus as a substitute sacrifice. He took our place and bore the penalty for our sins. You can read that in, well, matter of fact, let's just, I'll, I'll just tell you what it says in Isaiah 53, 6. Most of you may have this memorized, but it says in Isaiah 53, 6. If you haven't memorized it, it says, All we like sheep, it's, it's a very familiar verse. All we like sheep have gone astray. Uh, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So every one of us have gone our own way, 
and the Lord has laid on the iniquity on him the iniquity talking about Jesus uh, the, the iniquity of us all so the high priest has now sacrificed the bullock that will atone for him and his house the blood was caught in a vessel and is ready to take into the holy of holies but first there's one other step that must be taken before he can take the blood inside now as stated in verse 12 uh, he must take a censer and fill it with coals from the brazen altar. Let me just read that. I didn't include that in here, but I should have. But it's what it says. This is what it says in verse 12. Then he shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from the altar before the Lord with his hands full of incense beaten fine and bring it inside the veil. So he, he takes his censer full of holy coals, holy and hot coals, and his, and his two hands full of the special incense used in the tabernacle. See, we read this too, and we studied this back in the day of the tabernacle, in the wilderness tabernacle. There was a specific incense that God, a specific mixture that God gave for them to use on the altar of incense inside the, the holy place, which is the sanctuary, the middle, or the, the first chamber inside the tabernacle. And this incense could not be reproduced. It's, this is a special incense that could only be used by the priest and never duplicated for anyone outside of the priesthood or outside of the tabernacle or temple service. If that was ever reproduced outside if anybody ever tried to steal that and reproduce it for themselves outside they would be totally cut off and stoned to death for it was only for the temple service so for the nation watching he was now just he has now he's he's entered in says so he he has to enter into the in, into the uh, and used in the tabernacle he's entering in uh for the nation watching, he has now disappeared from public view. First, he must pass. He's gone into the chamber of the tabernacle, uh, first the first chamber, which is called the inner court or the holy place. The next place is the holy of holies. But this place is called the holy place. This is the place where the, the golden candlestick is at, where the table of showbread is. Uh, he goes by the golden, golden candlestick and showbread table as he approaches the veil, which is right before the holy of holies. He then goes behind the veil into the inner room called the Holy of Holies. I would imagine at this moment, if not sooner, his heart rate is probably uh, at 200 beats per minute. Can you all imagine being in that position as a high priest and you're fixing to go into the presence of God, which you can only go into one time a year and only one person can do that. Can you imagine his, his, uh, what, he's, what he's thinking? Let me give you a, a, a little statistic about that right quick. Uh, in latter times, when they when they had the first temple, you remember Solomon's temple, the first temple that was Solomon's temple. It lasted that period of time for that temple lasted 410 years, and over that course of 410 years, how many high priests do you think there was in 410 years? There was 12. That was an average of 34 years each. You served for life when you were high priest, and so that was an average of 34 years that each high priest served. So they had 12 high priests, and they averaged 34 years of serving. The, so now, after the, the first temple was destroyed, remember, and now we have the second temple was built around uh, 573, something like that. I can't remember. I didn't write the date. But it lasted 420 years. And so how many high priests do you think there was in that 430? First one was 410 years. The second temple lasted 420 years, actually. How many high priests do you think? Anybody got a guess? 12 on the first time. How many on this one? 420 years, they had 300 high priests. Now, what's the average length of the high priest at that, during that time? 1.4 years. You were only a high priest on average for 1.4 years. There were some exceptions. There was one high priest that was very righteous called 
uh, Simeon the Just, and I think he priest, he was priest for 40 years. But the rest of them, that means that even cut it probably back for the rest of them. They probably served less than that. So, and the reason for that is because when the second temple was built and, and there was much corruption and that office of high priest was actually bought and paid for in most cases. So, I mean, you know, politics even goes back into those days where they had politics, people buying the office of the high priest. And so as a result of that, you know, you had 300 high priests over a period of 420 years. That's amazing to think about how that compares. So anyway, I thought that was just interesting. So, uh, so we have a picture of the tabernacle, I think, if we can show that. Okay, so here we're talking about here, he walked through the veil. If it was a tabernacle, he walked through the front veil, which is in the, in the, the next, next room where the, the candlestick is. That's the, the golden candlestick. And then the table of showbread on the right and then at the back, right before the veil, is the table of incense, or the, the altar of incense. And so now he's fixing to enter behind the veil, and he's going into where the uh, Ark of the Covenant is, um, and that's the place where he's going. That's the place where he's probably sweating bullets at this very moment. So we learned about the Holy of Holies in the Wilderness Tabernacle study. But to refresh your memory, this is the innermost room, and there's only one piece of furniture inside, which is the Ark of the Covenant. It's a small chest about two feet high, two feet wide, and four feet long. Uh, the lid attached to, to the ark is called the mercy seat, and it is entirely made of one piece of solid gold. Two cherubim figures, are, we, we talked about that, are on top of the mercy seat at each end facing each other, their wings outstretched before them, touching each other at the middle of the lid. And right between the two cherubim above the mercy seat is the blinding light, as represented in that picture, representing the presence of God's glory called the Shekinah glory. Now, Shekinah, Shekinah is not a word that's in the Bible. The Jewish rabbis brought that out later. But that was actually, the, it was such a glory that there was a presence. You could feel it. You could actually feel the presence. You could actually, uh, in other words, it was a very uh, 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 noticeable presence. It's called the Shekinah glory. And there are several instances in the Bible where that Shekinah glory was evident. It's the manifested presence of God dwelling in the midst of the people. The Holy of Holies is God's earthly throne room. The mercy seat is his throne, and the great light is his visible presence. It's probably a presence that you could feel, that you could touch if you could actually touch it, but I don't think anybody was wanting to. The glory of God is so bright in the Holy of Holies that the high priest cannot stand in his presence. So he goes into the room. Remember, he went into the room with incense, and his hands full of incense and the censer full of coal. So he goes into the room. He puts the incense over the hot coals in the golden censer. When the incense touches the coals, it completely fills the room with a fragrant white cloud of smoke. This enables the high priest to enter into God's presence. Remember, what it, it, you could not, it says right here in 1613, Leviticus 1613, and he shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the testimony lest he, lest he die. So if he didn't, if he stood there, he was probably going to die if there was nothing to, to block the, 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 uh, the Shekinah glory from him. He couldn't stand in the presence. That's the only way he could do it. The fragrance of the incense is a, is a free, sweet aroma to God. Remember, in, incense in the Bible represents the prayers of his people. You can see that if you'll go back and read Revelations 5, uh, 8, and um, uh, eight, uh, ch uh, verse, chapter 8, verse 3, and then also in Psalm 141 and uh, verse 2. 
Now the high priest must enter the Holy of Holies and return again behind the veil with the blood of the bullock that he slew earlier. There at the mercy seat, shielding, shielded from the consuming presence of God by the incense smoke, he sprinkles the blood once upon the mercy seat and seven times before it, according to verse 17. Remember, uh, seven is the number four. Anybody guess? What's the number four? What's seven? Perfection. All right, there you go. You get you get one extra point for that, JC. Seven, I know. Seven is the number for perfection. This looks ahead to the perfect sacrifice that will come and not only cover sins, but completely take them away. And his name is Jesus. Amen. Hallelujah. So we'll end tonight's session with a, a verse out of Hebrews 10.4, uh, talking about the sacrifices uh, that we're all... This is one of the things we'll catch a little bit more, but this is just a preliminary. Uh, the, the writer of Hebrews said, For it, it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. They were imperfect, but we're looking, for, we're looking forward to the perfect sacrifice, and we'll take that uh, in part two of the study next time we get together. Okay? Did y'all get something out of that? Good stuff. When we're talking about Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the Day of Judgment, and we'll see how uh, the Yom Kippur lines up with what we, the benefits that we have uh, with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Okay, let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you for your word, Father. We thank you for your word that reveals so much to us, Father. So many, so many times things are, are mysterious to us, and they it's hard for us to understand, but I thank you, Father, that you reveal these things to us. You help us to see the plan that you have for us, even the plan that you have before the foundation of the earth with Jesus and how he would be the one, the lamb that took away the sins of the world. So we thank you for that, Father. We thank you that you're revealing step by step that plan of redemption to us and that we can see that and use that and keep those these, these illustrations, these things that we see, these visual aids that we see, help us to understand and help us to be able to recall and relate to someone else when they ask us questions or when we get an opportunity to share. Father, help us to take this and share it where people that have a hard under, time understanding they will help, that will help them to understand why things had to be as they were. So, Father, we thank you for the word. We thank you for what you've revealed to us tonight. We thank you, Father, for blessing us. Father, I pray for special protection over every person that leaves this room tonight, that you will watch over them, give your angels charge over them to guide us home safely, and then, Father, to bring us back on Saturday for prayer, and then back on Sunday for a time before you again in the word. We thank you for it in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Thanks for joining us. We want to thank all of you who give to our ministries here at AOL Church. It's because of you that all of this is possible. You can give now by clicking the link below. And if you haven't already, subscribe and share this message. It helps us reach more people and share the gospel through you. Be sure to stay connected to us through our Church Center app, our website, arenaoflifechurch.org, and follow us on social media like Facebook and Instagram. May the Lord bless you and keep you. His face shine upon you, be gracious to you, and give you peace. Thanks again for listening. Go and make a difference today.